Welcome to Priority Message Series 1. This podcast is brought to you by the Fire and Rescue Services Association, a trade union within the Fire and Rescue Service that is independent and member-led. You can find out more about FRSA by visiting frsa.org.uk. Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the FRSA podcast, Priority Message. And I'm very fortunate to have with me this episode two local officials from Scotland, uh, namely David Crawford and Tim Kirk. Both of you, welcome to the pod for the first time and hopefully not the last time. Uh, Would you like to give a brief introduction to those listeners um, as to your background to the service and your background to joining the FRSA and getting involved locally? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll start off, Tim, and then you can come in second if you like. Um, yeah, I first uh, joined service uh, back in January 1986, uh, so that's just over 27 and a half years. Uh, currently a crew commander in the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service uh, based in Falkenburg, a small village. Um, with it runs between Inverness and Aberdeen, uh, the main trunk road, the 96 uh, running through it. My primary employment uh, is also in the fire-related world, um, but on the aviation side, and working with the Cup of the Fire and Rescue down at RAF Lossiemouth, and I've been there for just over eight years. Uh, so I'd like to thank, um, you know, the experience with both um, I can bring to my role in the FRSA. Um, when I started back in 1996, the, the station then was full of then RFU members. Um, so although I wasn't forced into joining any union, um, I did believe in representation. Um, so hence, I did join the, FB, uh, the RFU at that time. Um, but Ever since that, uh, you know, obviously changing to uh, uh, the FRSA uh, on a few occasions, I've had to to use them, uh, whether it's been myself or former colleagues. And I think I've um, spoken to you, Tristan, a few times on on certain things, and uh, certainly been resolved to a satisfactory um, uh, conclusion. And also the, the values that um, promoted me and the core values of the FRSA, which they're obviously we're independent, member-led, non-political, and the biggest one for me was uh, obviously the non-striking policy, mm-hmm. which um, for me was the, the biggest thing. Um, and since the amalgamation of the Scottish Fire and Rescue in the, um, back in April 2013, and there had been no real point of contact other than yourself um, regarding, you know, within the Scottish Fire and Rescue. Um, so when you, uh, I think you sent out an email, uh, was it a begging email or was it just an email? Well, I don't know if I used the word beg, but um, yeah, it was uh, it was an email putting a call out for anybody who's looking to come forward yeah. and get involved. So it, it's something that I've, you know, I've been passionate about. And when that came out, I did think, right, yeah, I think, you know, members in Scotland probably haven't had that contact or missed that contact. So I did think, yeah, I'll give it a go. Luckily enough, um, you took me on board. Uh, I must have 
I must have been good that day. I spoke to you. Um, but I can assure you, Dave, we are the lucky ones. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I became an official uh, in April 2022, 20, I think it was. 21, sorry. And then I was appointed to the exec board in January 22, which was um, a bit of an honour, very unexpected. Um, and I'm thoroughly enjoying both roles um, and having the chance to promote and support our members here in Scotland. Fantastic, Dave. Thank you very much. Um, you've been an asset since taking on the local official role. Um, and I can't thank you enough for what you do. Um, I'll just hand over to Tim to give an introduction to his involvement in Scottish Fire and Rescue and also the FRSA. Tim. Thanks, Tristan. Uh, Tim Kirk. Uh, I joined what was Highlands and Islands Fire and Rescue Service in 2006 as a firefighter at Ballantour Community Fire Station, working on the volunteer duty system. I joined the service after becoming a father, and in common with many new parents, I became far more risk aware. And I expected that if my daughter was in need of emergency help, the fire service would be there. And as soon as I'd had that thought, I felt morally compelled to volunteer to join and become part of that potential response for other parents and the community at large. I've since been promoted to Watch Commander at Ballantour, and I'm the regional rep for the FRSA for Inverness and the North. Prior to becoming uh, an FRSA member, I have to be honest, and I never really liked the idea of being in a union, to be honest, because uh, I imagined that all unions were militant and politically driven. After a couple of conversations with Dave, I was pleasantly surprised to find that my preconceptions were wrong. So I joined the FRSA as I was in need of some form of representation as I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the interactions between myself and a member of the management. As a result of being an FRSA member, the issue was resolved, which was a great relief at the time. And having benefited from being an FRSA member, I became a rep so that I could help others in the same way that Dave helped me. And again, can't thank you enough uh, for coming on board, Tim, because you provide another dynamic, uh, another viewpoint, specifically coming from the volunteer duty system. Um, and you've educated me on so many things, including wildfires as well, which, which is fantastic. And you've also managed, <clears throat> if you want to give him a name shout, to recruit somebody else into the fold. Yes, we're fortunate that uh, we've got Dan Patterson joining us as a, a regional rep and he'll be operating in the West Highlands. And Dan is going to be a, a fantastic asset to, to FRSA and supporting members all up and down the West Coast. And what I really like about both of you is that, I mean, we speak probably every week, I would yeah. say, yeah. Um, just to chew the fat over what's going on uh, and probably use each other as a sounding board on various matters, which is really good. You're, you're always contactable uh, for our members. Um, you always take a, an empathetic approach to the members' situations. You're not judgmental. Um, you've got great comms, uh, very approachable, and I, I think you epitomise everything that a local trade union official should be. If I could bottle you both and spread you across the country, I can assure you I'd be doing it because the cherry on the top is that you go out and you recruit new members. Yeah. 
which I think is great. So um, it's on record now, everything I've just said, just to say thank you again. Um, and if anybody out there listening wants to either get involved with regards to being a trade union official with the FRSA, any any part of the country, please use the contact details in the notes of the podcast. And even if you want to become a member, you're currently not a member, again, use the contact notes in the podcast and, and find out more. Um, so what I would also like to, to throw over to you both is the question of what impact you've had since becoming officials, benefiting members individually and um, union members as a whole. Yeah, you want me to go again, Tom, or you have it? Uh, I'll go again. <laughs> yeah, um, well, having been in post um, for a matter of days, I think it was, and on speaking to yourself, Tristan, I probably didn't realise um, the size of the task that was in front of me. Um, membership was just, well was decreasing. I think that was probably due to the fact that we didn't have an official in Scotland for a lot of years. And a lot of that members were probably retiring um, because of the, the, the old RFU. Um, and not having a point of contact. And the same could be said for the senior management team, who I don't think knew who we were um, or really knew who, who we were and what purpose we could serve. Um, so, you know, serve in anything relating to the development of the service. So one of the first things that uh, we had to do was make ourselves known again, basically. And we had to go back to good old basics, which was basically contacting everyone and uh, anybody uh, who we who we listen within the organisation that I thought we needed to um, to speak to, explaining who we were, uh, what we stood for, and that we had not disappeared. Um, our name had changed, yes, but we had members that needed representation in Scotland, and I wanted to be involved and how the service was developing or needed to develop to make it the best it could be. So I remember, again, one of the first conversations I think I had with you, Tristan, and you likened it to an oil tanker having to, to apply the brakes to slow down. And I think then once once it was stopped, I think you said to me it was going to have difficulty turning around, it was going to be slow to turn around. But, you know, I think it's turned around now and we're heading in the right direction. And over the last, I think, two and a half years, um, I think we certainly have done that. And for now, I think it's um, not only turned, but in the right direction. It's picking up speed uh, to where we're wanting to be. From my point of view, you know, um, I think we've got obviously more members. Um, we listen to you know, Andy pointed out there, we're listening to our members and what frontline staff and on-call staff are wanting to do or what in, what in the service to, or where they're wanting the service to go. And we're feeding that back into senior management. And luckily now, now um, by knocking on the doors, and it has taken a while, um, the senior management are starting to listen uh, and taking us seriously on board. Um, so, yeah, I think... Tim's got a couple of examples I'm, I'm pretty sure of, you know, how, where we've succeeded in that, Tim. 
Thanks, Dave. Yes. Um, like you, as a rep, I feel that we're in a very privileged position in that we're trusted by our members to represent them in whatever capacity is required. Um, I've represented several members through disciplinary and capability processes, and I've, without exception, I find that there's an immediate sense of relief when that member is reassured that they will have representation and support at a time that can be very stressful. There's examples where I've identified gaps in training and support that have been the contributory factor in bringing forward a capability or disciplinary investigation, and I've been able to successfully support those members through those processes. Those members have had support structures and training plans implemented and remain in the service. The result is that those members are happier in their roles, their stations perform better, and ultimately the service that they provide to their communities has improved. I strongly believe that without representation, many would almost certainly have resigned or retired. These cases can often be challenging, but they're also extremely rewarding. On a wider basis, following uh, an inquiry from a member at an on-call volunteer station in Persia, we were about the need for operational equipment, we engaged with their LSO. We were met with a very open and positive response. And through a short series of meetings, the equipment was sourced, training plan developed. Within a matter of weeks, not just that station, but a further two stations were equipped and trained with new powered rescue equipment for use at road traffic collisions. This has provided a real boost to the crews in terms of their operational capability and also improved outcomes at RTCs. It's an excellent example of what can be achieved by crews identifying improvements that can be made and us speaking directly with local officers, especially when those officers are so willing to engage and seek positive solutions. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And the work that you guys have done in a relatively short space of time has had a dramatic impact on individuals. I think in some of the disciplinary cases you've got involved in. And there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that without your intervention, those individuals would have left the service either voluntarily uh, or through dismissal. And you've managed to turn it round, goes back to the tanker. You've managed to turn it round into a positive whereby the individual not only is still in the job, but they rejuvenated in their passion for the job, having previously felt um, unloved, unsupported, unwanted, not valued. Um, you've also uncovered some um, structural issues within the brigade. Um, obviously, we, we're limited as to what we can say in terms of confidentiality, but you've identified that uh, individuals who are promoted into the watch commander role very often are not giving any support and training with which to perform that role. <clears throat> You've uncovered the fact that appraisals very, very rarely happen across the service, probably more particular in some old regions and brigades than others, um, having a huge structural impact on, on that change. So it's and it goes back to what you said, were saying earlier, Tim. You can get a huge amount of satisfaction of the of the work um, and the outcomes that that um, you've influenced, and I think that that cannot be understated. <clears throat> um, what what I'd also be interested to uh, to hear from you, particularly as a brigade that's gone from eight to one, 
which was, I think, was it 2013, 2014? 2013. What's the current state of the service and what direction do you think it's going? I'll go again, Tim. On you go, Dave. Yeah, I think um, not everyone will agree, um, but I think we both think um, the service is in a good place at the moment. Um, having been through some tough years, uh, the last few years, especially with the pandemic and the budget restrictions and dealing with the possibility of industrial action, um, just to name a few. Um, we also, I think, see now a strong senior management team um, with the newly appointments of the Chief Fire Officer, Hager, uh, our Chief uh, Deputy Fire Officer Stevens and ACO um, Faris, um, all who we have a good, in fact, I'd say a great working relationship, Tim, and Tim sure would agree with that. Um, so, and through their assistance and willingness to engage with the FRSA and ourselves, we now have uh, regular discussions with senior management team, one to ones. Uh, right from the local uh, DACOs to LSOs in all areas in Scotland. Um, and if we have an issue, uh, we can go straight to them if required to raise and hopefully resolve the issue without having to take it further up the chain. This has worked well, as Tim has mentioned, um, with the cutting gear, the volunteer cutting gear on the A9, which a9 is the most dangerous road in Scotland, so I'm sure you're aware there was 20-odd fatalities in it last year. And so to get something like that at a local level and sorted at a local level was ideal. And I think it's something that probably other um, red bodies probably wouldn't take on, um, whereas we have. Uh, and the positive result, as Tim has pointed out, is it benefits the crews, benefits the local community and the service because uh, it's seen as, you know, working together uh, in, in, in dialogue um, to fix uh, relatively, which is a big issue, probably a small issue to, to some. Um, but, uh, you know, this is this has worked well and, you know, the kind of working relationship that works for the benefit of all within the service, our members, our crews, most importantly, the communities that we serve. Um, if, of course, you know it can't be better, but you know we will work closely with the service, you know, you know, and to make it the best it can be. Simple as that. Um, and as I say, the, the working relationship that we we'll have with senior management um, is great. You know, they pick up the mobile phone and phone me. They've got their personal phone uh, phone number and. And in the last few months, you know, I've been getting personal calls about issues, getting the heads up on issues. And likewise, I can phone them, which is ideal. I just on that, Dave, I think that that cannot be underestimated the value of having that relationship where you can have um, offline conversations and you build that trust. Yeah. Um, because if you wait until, you know, a, a proposal has been fully crafted, um, it's very difficult to then try and change it, even if SLT realised that it's probably not ideal. Yeah. So I think the relationships and the trust you've both built with SLT is going to be very, very, very beneficial to our members. Yeah, definitely. 
Tim, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, very much along the, the same lines as what Dave has, has commented. I think there is certainly a positive direction of travel, um, as well as being the, the fourth largest fire service in the world. SFRS is unique in the UK, as 80% of its crews work on the on-call duty system. The service has invested significant time and effort into understanding and developing the on-call. And as a rep body, we've been heavily involved in this development. And there are several real success stories with Scottish Fire and Rescue Service. The on-call migration to whole time, the on-call improvement board, the National On-Call Leadership Forum are all projects that have focused on areas where improvements were required and they are delivering results. Communication is another area where we have seen a real positive change. The senior leadership team do deserve credit for the way in which they are shaping the service. We regularly meet with ACO Farris, DACO's Stephen Wood, Stuart Nicholson, Stephen Wright and Head of Operations Gary Mackay. These meetings, as David suggested, are a great opportunity to discuss ideas or issues that have arisen. And it's also noticeable that LSOs are being given the autonomy to make local decisions and this encourages and develops better communication at those local levels with their stations. So yes, I think a positive direction of travel for sure and communication I think is absolutely key in everything that the service are doing. It, it absolutely is. And you, you demonstrate on a regular basis the importance of being a member of a trade union. In that, you've got a voice from some somebody, whether they're in development, whether they've been around for decades, they're boots on the ground and they can ensure that their view is heard right at the very top. And without being a member of a union, I don't know quite how that happens. So that that alone, I believe, is worth um, the subscription fee to ensure that you've got that voice. I couldn't agree with you more, Tristan. In days gone by, as a, a watch commander at a station, the only route was quite rightly through the chain of command. But with the churn that we've seen in station commanders and group commanders, if there was a, an issue that required multiple inputs, by the time the information was coming back down the, the chain, it was people that weren't connected with the original thread. So it took an awful long time to to get this communication sorted out. And I think now that we've had, uh, with a trade union voice, we have that direct line of communication with these people and it makes things so much easier for our members. Could I, could I then uh, bring you on to a topic that... Um is of great interest to those south side of the border. And that's the pay offer from 2019. Because um, Scottish Fire and Rescue Service, I thought were quite innovative in what they were proposing. <clears throat> they were looking to broaden the role of the firefighter and with it provide incremental um, pay increases. Um, I've crunched some numbers and I know more importantly you've crunched some numbers so what would be of great value I think to the listener would be the journey that Scottish Fire and Rescue Service went through from 2019 to the point of rejecting the offer, um, the thoughts in hindsight of whether that was a good or bad move and where firefighters in Scotland could have been 
had they accepted the offer at the time. Yeah, the the pay offer continues to be talked about uh, in every station across the country, I think. And the 2019 pay offer amounted to a, a combined interest rate of 17% from July 2019 to July 2022. And based on those increases, the salary for a whole-time firefighter in July 2022 would have been £35,734. Unfortunately, the, the pay offer was rejected and those pay increases reverted to the NJC rates, rates and that resulted in a compound interest rate over the same period of just 13%. So the, the actual salary for a whole-time firefighter in July 2022 was £34,501. That's over £1,200 less than it would have been had the 2019 pay offer been accepted. The 2019 pay offer also stated that the final pay increase in July of 2022 would be a minimum of 2%. But if a higher offer was agreed nationally by the NJC, then that offer would be matched. And as we know, the recent pay, in the recent pay negotiations that was backdated to July 2022, that offer was 7%. So the 2019 pay offer would, in reality, have been worth over 22.5%. And as a result, whole-time firefighter's salary would have been just short of £37,500. That means that every whole-time firefighter in Scotland is currently almost £3,000 a year worse off than they would have been had the 2019 pay offer been accepted. This has obviously had a negative impact on the on-call staff as well, because their hourly rates and retainers for those that receive it have been affected also. The rejection of the 2019 PDL not only had a significant financial impact on staff, but it also set back the broadening of the role discussion by years. And the final thing that should be noted in that 2019 pay offer is that it was fully funded by the Scottish Government. So the service did not have to fund any of the increases by way of savings. And unfortunately, the same cannot be said for the current deal. Yes. And I think, you know, there's lots of chatter with regards to what was offered in Scotland and whether it was right or wrong by people who don't uh, have all the full facts in front of them. I think even at the time, um, it was an offer that we felt as an organisation was very attractive. Uh, as a union, we're very much pro-broadening of the role rather than the narrow scope we've currently got on the restrictions that causes, certainly in terms of recruitment and retention of on-call firefighters and volunteer firefighters. And if we don't, as a sector, fill that void, somebody else is going to. Um, so we were just discussion, discussing before um, we went live on the pod about the reasons why the FBU executive felt they wanted to reject the offer. That was rejected 60-40, which is a lot tighter than what probably a lot of people thought it might be within the FBU exec. Um, but on the ground, I think there's anecdotally a lot of people who probably voted to reject that regret voting to reject. And if that vote was to be um, cast today, it probably would be different. Would that be fair? 
Yeah, I would think so. Interesting, yeah. Definitely. And just going back to the main reasons why the FBU exec, and I'm looking from their own circular as to why they rejected it, and I'll read verbatim. The main areas of concern that were raised by their members during branch area and sectional meetings undertaken during the consultation period were co-responding to slip, trips and falls, and co-responding to uh, OHCA+, out-of-areas cardiac arrest. Now, from my perspective, that's confusing for me because a number of services across the UK are already doing co-responding slip, trips and falls, and co-responding to out-of-areas cardiac arrest. Um, So either... Those services have instigated those duties with the agreement of the FBU, which raises the question as to why they've rejected it in Scotland, or they've progressed it without the agreement of the FBU, which means why did Scotland need the agreement of the FBU? And it just feels that we're, we're, again, being hamstrung in terms of improving the terms and conditions of firefighters, not just in Scotland, but across the UK. And I struggle with that, and I'd welcome your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, on the, on the broadening of the rule, you know, it has to happen, you know, especially for, as Tim pointed out, 80% of stations in Scotland are on call. Um, majority um, are rural locations. Um, so... And we already respond to cardiac arrest and we already respond to, you know, helping our colleagues, in it, whether it's the police or SAS, to gain envy. Um, we know from experience, and especially it'll be worse in the north where Tim is, but, you know, our colleagues in the SAS are, are stressed to the limit as it is. So... To respond to or require an ambulance if somebody falls over or is in cardiac arrest and, and calls an ambulance, you can speak over an hour before anything turns up. So if you've got a fire station on in that area in your community, then why wouldn't you? Why would you not go respond? Why would you not respond? Um, we're all in the same job to save life at the end of the day. That's a, a priority job. Um, we're a fire and rescue service, um, and that's what we should be doing. Um, come 1st of July, when uh, the UFAST policy kicks in, then a lot of these calls, stations, calls numbers will, will drop significantly. So they have to have something in place, i.e. the slip trips and falls, the hours cardiac arrest to fill that gap because if we don't we'll lose firefighters it's as simple as that and once we lose firefighters we'll lose stations and the stations will then close and the communities won't have that fire cover and rescue cover and in locations like the Highlands where there's stations that are probably 20, 30, 40 miles apart probably more time Tim will know better than uh, myself but you know, that is between life and death. It's as simple as that. Um, the, the thing that, you know, gets me is that full-time dual contract um, 
employers or employees, firefighters, um, that, you know, their day job aren't willing to do that or are told not to do that by the FPU. But then when they finish their, their duty and go back to their own call role, are happy to turn out. So it's just, it's like sticking your head in the sand at some of them. You just think you can't do it doing your day job, but you can do it at night job. It, it's, we, we have to stay in the communities, the on-call stay in the communities. I couldn't personally, and, and if it was somebody local that I knew, not turn out to that. And, and I think the ones that we speak to, our members that we speak to, the stations that we speak to, community stations, on-call stations that speak to, want to do it. They're desperate to do it. It's just that we're not at the moment, although we are, we are turning out to these, and it's not officially in, in the pipeline yet, is it, Tim? I mean, it's just so frustrating for us and our members. And I think just, just before um, Tim comes in, <clears throat> it's one of the key differences with the FRSA. We're member-led. Yeah. Our members want to co-respond. Our members want to have a broader role. Yeah. Um, we listen to that and we act on it. And I do scratch my head um, when speaking to uh, non-FRSA members who seem to share our views and our values but are members of an organisation that is stopping them performing that role. And just to re-emphasise what Tim said earlier on, if the members, FBU members in Scotland had accepted that offer, then from the 1st of July 2023, they would be £3,134 better off. Exactly. As a competent old-time firefighter. But they rejected that. And I struggle to get my head around that. I really do. Yes, it is a, it's an odd situation. It really is. And I think you're right, Tristan. Given their time over again, I think a number of people would change the way they voted. And as, as Dave mentioned, Scottish Fire and Rescue Service will shortly be changing the way it responds to automated fire alarm signals. And a consequence of that will be that stations will see a reduced number of calls. And that could mean that stations already with a, a low number of calls could find themselves under the microscope in terms of viability. This will obviously be a concern for stations that are rural or remote rural. You know, and those stations are 100% saying broadening of the firefighter role is vital to ensure that those stations are relevant and responsive to the needs of their community. The service provides humanitarian response for animal rescues, quite rightly, but currently cannot provide a response to an uninjured follower. If somebody fell outside a fire station on a drill night, the crew would go and they would help that person. But if that same person got home and fell in their home, the same crew would not be mobilised to help. With the strain that the NHS is under and the availability of ambulances, this is surely one area where the fire service should be providing a better service for their communities. It is almost certain that in rural and remote rural areas, there is a fire appliance closer to someone in need of help than an ambulance. Firefighters by their nature are compassionate people who want to help. 
They are already trained in the treatment of trauma and could be using those skills to help more people in their communities. And I think if the public were educated into understanding that these individuals are fully resourced, fully trained, but are being held back and performing a, a really valuable public safety role, they would be horrified. Um, going back to Scotland, the, the money was on the table. It was a fully funded offer. Yeah. Um, the ambulance service in Scotland welcomed the involvement of the fire service in uh, providing a response to cardiac arrest. So what was not to like? More money, wider role, um, increased visibility for the public. It would have improved recruitment and retention for on-call and volunteer. And we've just missed the boat by what we're pretty much five years on now. Yeah. Five years wasted and counting. I don't want to dwell on that too much because it's quite negative, um, but it's extremely frustrating for us. Uh, we look at it as an organisation from a completely different perspective and we see it as a missed opportunity. Um, I think we've covered the question about um, what are our views are on broadening the role in Scotland. We're, we're supportive. Obviously, there needs to be checks and balances. There needs to be safety, safeguards in place. Um, but, but overall, it, it really is a no-brainer. Yeah. It's the 21st century. We need to be looking at things differently to how we've done in the past. We need to be more open-minded. Um, and I think we've demonstrated that over recent years, that, that that's our approach. Um, question to you both. Uh, what do you think the current and future challenges are as local officials in Scotland, Scottish Fire and Rescue? I think uh, Tim and me have both agreed with this one, but... Um uh, the current, current and future challenges in Scotland are recruitment and retention. Um, we need to find uh, better ways of recruiting on-call staff, especially, uh, and retaining those that we do have, um, especially experienced ones. And we're the only rep body that is proactive in trying to find ways of doing this. Uh, both myself and Tim sit on the National On-Call Forum um, which has looked at possible ways we can do this. I know they've been looking at other services throughout the UK to see what kind of how they recruit, how they retain their crews, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we've been involved with that, uh, looking at other ways. Um, so, you know, we're looking at the amount of losses that we have compared to whole time. Um, you know, going by statistics for 2021-22 there was um, just over three and a half thousand whole time firefighters which was down 1.5% from the previous year uh, but that was mostly down to retirements um, on call um, retained for the same period uh, was 2,872 to 2,758 which was 114 less which was 4% and our volunteer colleagues um, had fared, fared slightly worse, fall, falling from 303 to 277, which is an 8.6% um, from the previous year. So, and, and basically, they, the majority of them were, were resignations from the service. So we need to actually know or find out why, why they're leaving, uh, why they're resigning. 
Um, and again, we're the only ones asking these questions. Um, so we'll have to laugh at uh, whether we chuckle the other day because um, the FBU are currently uh, deploying um, somebody into a post um, to re actually recruit RDS members. Um, now, RDS uh, title has gone and has been gone for considerable time. It's RVDS, uh, obviously, to carry our volunteers, that, um, our colleagues in the volunteer service. Um, but for, for a, a union not to recognise that, um, you know, says it a lot to me that they're kind of scraping the, you know, scraping for members now. I think that we found ourselves in the last last year anyway, we found a lot of FPU members, non-members coming across the FRSA. Um, so from that point of view, yeah, it's retention and recruitment. Um, so, yeah. Along the lines of that, Tim, are you in agreement with that, or Justin, you want to come back in there, sorry? Yeah, Dave, uh, the two biggest challenges are exactly as you've described. It's recruitment of new firefighters and retention of existing firefighters. The recruitment is a challenge because people are not living and working in their communities as much as they used to be. People are travelling a distance to work, which makes attracting folk that can provide daytime cover more challenging. That doesn't mean, of course, that we should just throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, it can't be done. We need to be looking at a better mix of contractual obligations. 120 hours just isn't feasible for many folk, whereas a, a reduction in the, the contractual hours is something that would definitely attract people that, that could offer 60, 70 hours a week. And a number of those people into a station would turn that station from being off the run a lot to a viable, responsive station again. And retention is a is a big issue. Um, people are generally leaving when they fail the fitness test, and that's we're not saying, of course, that they you shouldn't have to have a fitness test. But the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service have the highest standard fitness test of any fire and rescue service in the UK. Other services have different standards and there needs to be a root and branch look at the fitness standards required with scientific evidence to back it up. Because that is a stumbling block for many recruits coming in. Many recruits fail the fitness standard. And we cannot afford, as a service, to be losing people that are interested and engaged in the in the process at the fitness stage. We, the service, have done a lot of good work in assisting people through the recruitment process. And inevitably, there will be some people that are just not physically fit enough to be a firefighter. But the work that's been done thus far needs to be continued and focused on. And that relies to a degree on station staff. We are identifying potential recruits for our stations and then we are supporting them through a fitness programme, something that I never thought I would see myself doing. But it is something that has to be done. Stations take ownership of their responsibilities. And that is one area that 
is a, such a challenge that a, a look, a broader look by the service at the fitness standard would be helpful, I think, to encourage more people to look at joining and help more people achieve a workable standard. I think um, in terms of the fitness standard, you're absolutely right. It's it's becoming a big, big topic. It's been a big topic for the FRSA for years. Um, and the penny seems to be starting to drop with some services that it's creating a barrier in terms of recruitment and retention. And is it fit for purpose? We've got different standards in different brigades. We've got different management processes in different brigades that can't be right can't be right it has to be as you said it it must be evidence-led but it can't be a sledgehammer to crack a nut either got a situation where if in the number of brigades if you fail the fitness test you're taken off the run full stop despite the fact that you don't need that high level of fitness just to be a driver or just to be an oic um so it needs it needs a review interestingly enough i've got uh, a podcast due to take place or to be recorded next week with Justin Johnson, chief of Lancashire, who's also, I think, still chair of the Fire Fit steering group. So that will be an interesting listen for those out there who are listening. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question. There's something that's cropped up this week. Cruise of three. Just wondered what your thoughts were. Sorry to sort of throw that at you, but just wonder what your thoughts are in terms of the use of Cruiser 3. I think uh, personally, we used to have Cruiser 3 years ago. Um, I think uh, joint mobilisation, if you've got a Cruiser 3, they're already trialling in the the north, Tim. Is that correct? Um, I think it's better getting a pump or a fly inside the door than none. Um, there's limited to what you can do, but uh, I'm all for it because at the moment you could be sitting at the station with three in the pumps off the run, not just here, um, you know, a wide area. The next two or three villages could be the same. And so if you can get our crew together with, with, that, with the next appliance next door to you, then yeah, go with three, meet up somewhere and, and then goes go as one but I'd rather have somebody turn out even though even though it's basic stuff running out hose you know clopping in the hydrant the next appliance comes at least you've got an appliance there uh, and then you can utilize the crew when you get there but yeah I'm all I'm all for cruiser three on the just come back to the to the last one when when the retention side of it you know we've got put the service not just in Scotland, but seem to do is, you know, guys that have a lot of experience, firefighters, crew commanders, watch commanders, that leave maybe because either not be, again, operationally fit, but they've been in for maybe 20, 15, 20 years. To lose that experience by just giving you a certificate at the end of it and saying bye-bye, it's crazy. These guys have probably been to more incidents than, you know, wide range of incidents than a lot of old-time firefighters. So why not utilise their experience for training, for example? Get these guys in to treat 
to, to teach the, the new generation of firefighters that are coming in the door and um, utilise them because I know training for example in Scotland do struggle you know for to fill gaps to fill the vacancies that are there so prime example is for on, on call use the on call that are, are there with the experience that might not be operationally fit for opening your frontline duties but can be utilised for other other stuff I think we miss a trick there, and we have brought it up, and, and I'm sure senior management are looking at that at the moment. Uh, we are certainly be pushing for it, so hopefully we might get something out of that. Tim, in terms of your your question, Tristan, crews of three, um, I think with a proper safety framework in place, proper training for crews and operation control, crews of three can work. As Dave has alluded to, there are a number of pilot schemes happening in Highlands and Western Isles, Orkney and Shetland, where crews that have three jointly mobilise and form one combined crew and proceed to the incident from there. We've been heavily involved in the development of those pilots and it is showing real benefit. It is multi-layered benefits. You're having operational firefighters that would otherwise be off the run, turning out to incidents, keeping their their skills sharp, providing a service to their communities. Those appliances are going out the door, their communities are seeing them, they're visible. The benefits for recruitment are there because these appliances, these firefighters are are being seen out doing their job. It's also helping with retention because rather than the, the pump being off the run all day because they only have three, they are effectively on the run. Yes, they have to join crew with an adjacent station, but they are still able to perform the roles that they joined the fire service for. And as Dave has mentioned, a crew of three in correct circumstances and correctly managed can make a positive impact at certain incidents. Not every incident but certainly at certain incidents, they can make a significant initial impact. And the service, I think, should be pursuing these ideas with gusto, because in the Highlands especially, there are so many stations that are sitting with three crew members during the day because everyone else is off working somewhere else. And those resources are underutilised. And the skills that are sit on those stations, even with C, are a valuable resource that could be used. I think we're all in agreement with regards um, to Cruiser 3 there. My my concern is where I'm hearing stories from some services where they're using a driver as an OIC on a crew of three <clears throat> and where they're using Cruiser 3s to go to any incident um, as the first in attendance, I think. Both of those issues are, are red lines for me personally. Um, we're a member-led organisation. Um, some members might see that slightly differently. And I know we've got different views in different areas of the country uh, with regards to that. But I think in terms of what you've both, the responses you've both made, certainly I t- I'm in total agreement with that. And I think it, it's becoming another hot topic and we'll probably do another pod just on that particular topic 
Uh, I'm going to look to wrap things up. Um, just want to thank you very much for taking part in the pod. Um, we've talked about it for quite a long period of time. We finally got together and we're recording it. Fantastic. Uh, I'll put your contact details in the notes. Anybody listening is interested uh, in finding out more about the FRSA in Scotland or even becoming a local official in Scotland, uh, please do contact either Dave or Tim. Uh, and I'll give you both the last word. Okay. Um, just just from my point of view, um, just want to thank yourself, Tristan, um, HQ and all officials in, in the UK for for all your help because, as I said, there's only two, well, was only two, uh, now three, <laughs> three of us in Scotland. And being the fourth largest fire service in the world, it's a big job. And without your help and um, HQ's help and officials, then I think um, we probably would have struggled. But uh, so from a personal point of view, I just want to thank, thank you especially for all your help because you're at the end of that phone or a team's meeting um, for advice uh, and stuff like that is just uh, second to none so um, I just want to thank you in a personal personal note for all your help Pleasure, thanks Dave Tim At the, the risk of sounding a bit like an echo um, <laughs> I too would like to, to thank the, the FRSA wider family um, yourself Tristan obviously and everyone at HQ, but also the reps right across the UK, because the interac interaction with them is really helpful, and there's been a lot of good ideas exchanged between them. And I think also a nod to Scottish Fire and Rescue Service, because as Dave has mentioned, we were a bit of an unknown quantity for a, a number of years, but through dialogue and interaction, we feel that uh, we really do have a seat and a voice at the table and there to be commended for welcoming us um, into into everything that they do. So yes, it's a, it's a thumbs up from the north of Scotland. Fantastic. So just to say thanks for listening to the latest podcast and remember to subscribe to Priority Message and tell all your friends and colleagues. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Priority Message, why not subscribe to the podcast and recommend to your colleagues? We hope you will be joining us again soon. <laughs>